Joe Larson and Sean Eli, welcome to another session of Coffee in the Clouds with comedians. With comedians, how you guys doing? Good. Should I, should I introduce Joe? Give Joe a better introduction than that. Okay, Joe Larson in, calls himself a father and a comedian. He's been on America's Got Talent and an appearance on The Tonight Show. And the thing that impresses me most, you describe yourself as a father, but you're actually the son of a comedian, which is pretty rare. Yeah, not an accomplishment, but definitely rare. Uh, <laughs> I had very little to do with that part of it. Uh, yes, I'm the son of a comedian who is uh, now retired. He's now writing crossword puzzles. It was actually uh, the Sunday New York Times two weeks ago. He was their crossword puzzle. No kidding. Did yeah. put you in it? Uh, no, I, uh, which is why we're, we're not talking right now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really tense. Um, no, but it's very cool. I think that the mind for comedy and the mind for crosswords is very similar. It's, you know, taking something that you would normally not uh, consider um, to fit in a certain area or two things that don't necessarily connect, but may have some odd connection and uh, trying to figure out that puzzle. So, well, you, you know, crossword puzzles, you're supposed to fit. Well, no, but I mean, they, what I'm saying is like, it's not such an obvious answer, you know, like the, the you, you wouldn't go, uh, you know, uh, what do you call a six stringed instrument? That's too obvious. So you got to find something that's a little bit more difficult uh, to come up with as for a clue. A very, very, very broken piano? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, a too complex bass. Um, <laughs> How about what do you call a six-string instrument levitating on your wall behind you? Well, we're going to call that. <laughs> you know, what's up, what's up? See, again, I'm not the crossword puzzle guy. I go with the obvious clues. Uh, <laughs> we do. We have the piano. We got the drum set right there. We oh, got wow. the electric guitar. Do you play all those? Well, let's see if I can learn. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I play guitar. My daughter plays drums and my wife plays piano. We've got the family band. We just need a band. You let your child learn the drums? Are you crazy? That's why I bought a house in New Jersey, my friend. Uh, you can't do that in New York. <laughs> so, Joe, it was a while. It was a while since we met last. Has anything happened since we spoke last technologically? Have you done anything more with like Zoom or virtual events or anything like that? I mean, anything like that cooking since uh, since we last met? Well, I think that uh, what I've noticed most is that uh, people have gotten really comfortable with it. Uh, I have done a ton of birthday parties and corporate events and things like that. Uh, the one cool thing that I haven't done yet, but I'm excited about it, is I'm doing Acme Comedy Company in Minneapolis, first weekend of December, and they sell tickets for live and for virtual. So you can attend the show anywhere in the world. So it'll be interesting to see what they pull for numbers and what they even charge. I'm not sure, but uh, it's a... They've entered the new world and embraced it completely, which is very cool. Well, that's what we've been talking about here on a couple of the episodes is a hybrid model where even when things open, you like New York City comedy clubs or top clubs like Acme could do that and, and you could increase your audience tremendously. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many people that pull audience are comfortable with it. You know, because uh, like a Jim Gaffigan is not going to want to do it because that blows his load for the entire world in one night, you know, and he can't charge a ticket price high enough. So I don't know if it's going to be a model that works for your really high end comics. Uh, but for schmucks like you and me, we might be able to make a couple bucks, you know. 
Well, are they giving you a higher pay because they're selling tickets online? They're, yeah, so they're doing a door deal style. That's um, yeah, uh, so you, so whatever they're making, I'm making a cut of that. So uh, it's it's a fair uh, thing. They've also got a huge audience. You know, they've been building an email list for 30 years, um, even before email they started. You know, they were like, listen, uh, just give us some information about you that you may, you may be putting into any. What do you like to do on the weekends? Are you a golfer? Frisbee guy 23 at AOL. Well, they used to, I mean, before email, they would collect phone numbers so they could call people and try to get them to come back to shows. Yeah. How sad is that? That's the, ours is the only industry where we just beg people to come see us. <laughs> hey, it works. Well, you, you know, the one thing that these shows have been doing is they're getting a lot of exposure um, and I think it might set the stage for when the world does go you know, quasi back to normal, you know, so that when corporations or schools or colleges or, you know, groups, associations or whatever, go back to hiring, you know, this has given us an opportunity to be, you know, we're still front of mind, you know, and we're, and we're, and we're still, you know, we're relevant, you know, so that's, that's something. I think the big misstep people are making is this idea that we're going to go back to some kind of normal. I think that what we might, you know, the hybrid model is like, we just introduced a new technology to the entire globe, forced all of them to use it, to think that we're gonna move backwards. It's like, no, no, we have a new tool at our disposal and it's never going away. This is gonna be the new thing. Like the, my kids were, uh, their school was just talking about how there's never gonna be another school uh, snow day. Right. That's just gonna be a distance learning day because we already have the platforms in place. We already have the models in place. So now there's no more snow days. Well, that's awful. That's just awful. <laughs> well, know, for, yeah, but well, luckily you're not in school anymore. So I think I think you'll be I think you'll be okay. Um, but it cost the uh, it cost the uh, school district a lot less to do it that way and run it that way. Um, so once the systems are up and running, there's not really uh, the cost doesn't increase. It just uh, allows for a greater exposure to their audience to who they're working with. So. Uh, It'll be interesting to see going forward what our models look like. But that's the government taking away one of the rare pleasures in life. It's like pulling up to a parking meter with time on it. And now that all of that is electronic, you can't do that anymore. And it's the same thing. Like, give a kid a damn snow day. Let him play in the snow or her play in the snow once in a while. Well, that was the other thing that I've been talking to other parents about is, uh, you know, like I know this woman who works for the city and she's like, well, now they're saying that because of this i still have to show up virtually on a snow day so it's like well she can't necessarily plan to have somebody take care of her kids so i think people are going to the adjustment is not uh perfect uh it'll it's going to take a lot of fudging here and there and trying to figure out how uh families work with this and families adopt adapt to this or, or audiences adapt to this or customers adapt to this because again that's a situation where especially if you have two working parents and they don't get a snow day, well, that kid's got to go somewhere and it's probably, and it's not school. And it's, uh, and those parents can't stay home. There's, there's a lot of problems there. When you look at what people have done what what the pros have done, like, you know, Stephen Colbert did it from home, Jimmy Kimmel, Saturday night live, what they did. Um, Bill Maher, right. He did it from home, but then he went back to the, uh, to the studio, but then it was an empty studio, but now it's not, I mean, do you have any opinions on, on who did it right or, or who's doing it right or better 
versus. I think Kimmel did it the best because he just quit for like two weeks. He was like, I'm out. <laughs> okay. like, Screw this. <laughs> I did blackface 20 years ago. Can I take a break? That's my snow day. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, I guess ratings tell who's doing it right. Uh, but I think that this moves us to more pre-production, which is interesting because um, more pre-recorded sketches, things like that, are the ones that are going to do well and going to go viral because this weird thing where there's a screen and somebody's face and the, I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Yeah. Um, but I think that, again, it's people adjusting to the medium. Like nobody's really taken it by the reins yet and gone, ooh, we have this new toy. How do we fuck with it? How do we completely turn comedy on its head? You know, it's like a lot of times when you add parameters to something, that's where creativity happens. My brother-in-law is an architect. And I was asking him, I was like, out in Montana, it must be great because you can just design whatever you want. And he goes, no, all creativity happens in small spaces. Hmm. Give me the most restrictions. And that's where creativity happens because you don't have, you can't just do what you're the first thing that pops in your head. You have just problem solve. And, uh, I think the problem with the big shows is they didn't have to problem solve, really. Uh, Colbert was like, I'll just do the same show from my house with a screen. But it was terrible. Yeah, it was. But, you know, that being said, Colbert wasn't great in the first place. Uh, <laughs> um, but none, none of them were forced to really wrangle with this beast. Um, SNL was the only one that kind of wrangled with the beast, but then they went back to their old model as soon as they could. Well, actually, they went back to it before they could. Because yeah, I think yeah. what they did what they did was using a loophole to get around the rules. For those who don't know, they had an audience when they weren't supposed to by claiming the audience were employees and they paid them. And to me, that's just making a mockery of, of COVID restrictions. Yeah, what well, what I love about that is uh, if, if you wanted me to go see SNL, you would have had to pay me beforehand. So I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone should be subjected to that show without a little bit of money, uh, a little monetary compensation. Um, but yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I, I think that the big shows are not what we should be looking at for who's being creative in this situation. You know, uh, big companies don't, they move slow, they move real slow. And, uh, and it's, and it's young upstarts and weird little guys that are doing amazing things. Um, what's his name? New York comic, Andrew. He was on Guy Code. He was on a couple other things. Schultz. 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 Andrew Schultz at the start of this uh, started creating videos that just knocked it out of the park. He got more success in the first eight weeks of COVID than I think, you know, Jim Gaffigan got in his first 10 years. Um, well, Sarah Cooper did the same thing. She just did something nobody else, you know, expected and, and got famous really quickly. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing is like we're no longer looking towards the old channels. So somebody trying to do old things in a new channel is way off. You know, it's just recreate it completely. Blow it all out of the water. Do what Steve Martin did in the 70s, which is like, I'm going to throw everything I've ever known about this medium out, take the little nuggets of funny that I find in myself, and just try to create something completely new. So what about, what about like movie theaters where, okay, years ago, all right, movie theaters are dead. It's not, you know, the technology changed it. Okay, they didn't die. But they mm -hmm. had to change, right? They had to do better sound. And, you know, I mean, I remember a year ago, I, I actually enjoyed going to the movies. Oh, look at this big chair and I can lean back. And, you know, well, now obviously not so much, right? Mm -hmm. What about just comedy in, in, in general? In other words, 
does does the community know like does the inner circle of comics go all right the clubs are going to reopen but it's going to be six months or the clubs are going to be okay or i mean or is is everybody clueless does anybody know or does every is everybody just completely guessing well this uh, if you're looking at all of north america a lot of the clubs are open okay you know it's really but it's diminished capacity and there's um and, and the, what they can pay went down and the people who are willing to work for them went the, the standard went way up, right? Um, because Sam Morell can't get booked at uh, the Funny Bone for five grand in a week. He's going up to Connecticut for 500 bucks and doing little outdoor beer gardens, you know, like so that whereas normally they were getting a, ca a caliber of comic much lower, they're getting a caliber of comic much higher. So uh, the supply of comedians is far outweighs the demand right now. So what you're seeing is the lower comics going, I got nothing. <laughs> now, what about, what about production? Again, I, I'm not the professional in the room here, but you know, you, you see on TV or whatever, like, okay, the writers would get into a room together, you know, and right. Are they doing that, but doing it via zoom? Are they are, like, is there any part of, your industry being done with technology other than obviously the actual performance? When it comes to shows, yeah, there's a lot of writing that's happening on Zoom. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, any group element of it is happening on Zoom. The larger productions, uh, they're doing as much as they can apart from each other. And then they have to spend 14 weeks completely quarantined with uh, tests every single day before they get to their shoot. It's crazy. Um, my buddy Michael Yo, uh, who I write for, um, he just uh, he just shot something uh, for the Food Network, and he had to be in a in in his in a hotel room for like two weeks. Wow. No, it was like a week and a half, um, where they'd bring him his food and things like that before he could shoot. Wow. So they ended up paying him, paying him more because they'd pay him for that time away. Uh, but the whole production was like that. They were all quarantined, tested every day. You know rapid tests at the shoot things like that it was crazy so the cost of things is way higher for networks now is is that true in in hollywood proper as well like in other words not so much comedy but acting and stuff or maybe you guys don't know but i mean do you hear any scuttlebutt like is that what's well, going I mean, this on was, this was a hosting gig so uh yeah technically this was more of your like hollywood show business and stuff right um on agt this year if you were uh going forward you weren't allowed to go on the road Huh. Um, because they didn't want you traveling, wow. uh, things like that. So yeah, it's um, it's really it's tied everyone into one place, uh, which is very odd, and not allowed people to capitalize as much on the things that they put out earlier this year uh, that they had hoped to tour on, you know, specials and TV shows and things like that. So they're capitalizing on that one in the toilet. So it's how do you keep reaching your audience and keep them excited about the thing that they saw a year ago so that maybe in a year you can go on the road. I have no idea. I mean, I have a friend who's a director of a, of a sitcom and, and I spoke to him a couple of months ago and he said, we're going to go back to work. We're going to be testing everybody two or three times a week. I forget which. And he said, as soon as somebody tests positive, we shut down for two weeks and it was going to be impossible to shoot. But the alternative was not having a TV show. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we do. We are completely unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the same time, we're pushing forward. <laughs> well, there's a club, couple of clubs in New York that are suing the city or the. I think they're suing the state 
because they said, you know, why can bowling alleys open but not comedy clubs? Well, because bowling alleys aren't fun. So everyone's <laughs> naturally socially distanced. <laughs> we did a Coffee in the Clouds with actors with uh, Ken Olin and uh, Peter Onorati uh, from This Is Us. Yeah. Pretty, pretty famous show, right? And, um, you know, we, we talked about different things, but I mean, it's like, I just don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows, like, what is the future of acting? What is the future of theater? What is the future of Hollywood? Um, I mean, here's the thing. Those, it, I, acting in, in show business things has been around since the beginning of time. It's not going away. It's just changing. Yeah. But, and, but like Broadway is, it's so expensive to put on a Broadway show. They can't do it with half an audience. No. So that's going to have to wait. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like the art itself of acting, again, the old housing, the old uh, mechanism that drove it forward is breaking apart. It's being destroyed. This is, uh, you know, uh, if we were to lose all petroleum right now, we would really figure out how to fast track electric, electric cars yeah. and things yeah. like that. Uh, and, but we're not getting rid of personal vehicles. It's right. not going to happen. Right. Right? right. It's just the model that we're sitting in show business in is uh, is is falling apart. We've lost the engine or the the fuel to move this that's move this thing forward for thousands and thousands of years. So now it's yeah. just like, okay, now what's our fuel source? Now how do we generate income? Yeah, I think that's that might be one of the better uh, analogies that I've heard in a while. Of like, yeah, okay, well, it's not going away. It's just got to be different. I think the, the harder part of this for, for the people in our industry is, you know, you generate jokes based on life experiences. And if you're home, like, I mean, Joe's got, got a wife and, and family, but I'm home by myself. I don't have any life experiences to joke about. Yeah, I don't want to just write COVID and Trump jokes. John, if you want a wife and kids, you can come have mine. I'm tired of them. <laughs> Well, you know, Sean, you've been doing some podcasts, right? You've been doing audio podcasts and you've been doing Zoom shows and stuff. I mean, excuse me, Sean, right? Sean, you've been you, you yeah. just did one, right? So yeah. so what what do you see? I mean, is the is the tide going in? Is the tide going out? I mean, what what do you what are your thoughts on on our, our situation right now? I think once things are over and you know, when there's vaccine a vaccine, everything will get back to normal. I figure mid next year will be pretty open. Because even if you got half, only half the country vaccinated, that cuts your risk down. So I think, but I'm not an epidemiologist. It's been a long time since I studied epidemiology, but uh, I actually did take a, I should tell this story. So I was interested in epidemiology in college. The only epidemiology class in the whole university was a graduate nursing class in epidemiology, but there was no, no prerequisite. So I signed up for it. I showed up for the first class. It's like, 14 nurses and me, 14 female nurses and me. And I go home and I tell my roommate who's pre-med, hey, I just signed up for an epidemiology class. It's me and 14 nurses. I go back to the next class. It's me, 14 nurses and Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when you sign up for a class and you uh, and it always it throws you for a loop. I remember in college, I signed up for a sign language for my language course because I thought, wow, this has to be the easiest class to cheat in. Just uh, <laughs> so what do we got number three? You know, and it turns out uh, she could hear. 
I was pissed. <laughs> the teacher was not deaf. <laughs> I was so upset. I was like, this is, I got to learn shit now? This is terrible. So do you know sign language or you didn't go far enough? No, I, I mean, I took one, one, one semester of it and I was like, I'm done. Oh, this is, yeah. this well, is we all, we all have some sign yeah, language. Yeah, the New York sign language. Yeah, yeah. Ah, you know, so. We're New Yorkers. We know sign language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So, now, Joe, if I remember correctly, weren't you also like you did writing and you, you did a couple other things too, right? I mean, I've written for some shows and done some other stuff. And I'm, I'm actually, it's kind of funny because I've got, I write for three different comedians, uh, one of which I can talk about, Michael Yo. He's fine with me talking about. Um, and uh, he's been on the road a bunch. So I've been out writing for him. Okay. Um, which has been, you know, it's fun to write for another person because uh, I think that a lot of times comedians get, uh, uh, their jokes become precious, you know, right. and they go, I, I created this thing. And then it's hard to put out a great deal of material and always tweaking it, trying to get it just perfect. But with him, I am just plucking stuff against the wall and he's just throwing it all up there. And it, neither of us find it that precious because uh, it's my jokes and his performance and, you know, it can fail on both. And what level, if I could say, you're not going to name names, but the other two people you write for, are they like Gaffigan level comedians? Just uh, the level before that, there's like um, small theaters and uh, sold out weekends at clubs, like the, the big clubs, you know, like a sold out weekend at um, uh, the Tempe Improv, which holds 750, you know, that sort of thing. I, I tend to ask this question at least a couple of times, but like I could see like if you're like a Colbert where like every night you got to do a new show effectively, so you need constant material right you got to have writers because you can't keep up but i mean most of the time comics write their own stuff right i mean it's your own material yeah but here's the thing is if you want to tour uh let's say you have poll in 30 markets okay right so that's 30 weekends a year um if you then come back to them every three years when you have a new hour that's now 10 weekends a year you can't live off of that right so to fast track the process, you bring in a couple people to open for you and throw you jokes and work on your set and write with you and bang on stuff. So it's it's more that uh, if they want to, because here's the thing, like the two best, two of the best comedians of all time could bang out an hour a year. And even them, it was like, huh? You know, like Carlin had a bunch of shit hours. And, yeah. and every time Louis put out an hour a year, I was like, that is a good 25 minutes of material. And uh, at, at most, you know, so if you really want to be bang on all cylinders and you're not famous enough yet where people will see you just because you're you, yeah, you, you, you have your audience, you want to make your money, you got to go out, you got to give them the new hour. Well, I pointed out to this people say, you know, how long does it take to create material? And I say, well, it depends on who you are, because if you're Chris Rock, you're not making your own travel arrangements. You're not doing your own bookings. You're not doing your own laundry. Right. You're not vacuuming your own floor. You got a lot more time to write jokes than a regular touring comedian. He wasn't even banging his own wife. Uh, (laughs) He outsourced that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, he was banging somebody else's wife. He was getting involved in that. (laughs) Well, let's go back to the writing for a second. When you write a joke, then what happens? Does that joke get worked? Meaning like you get it from 20 words down to 15 or I mean, is it? Is, is it like an editorial process at that point? What, what happens after you, quote unquote, write the joke? So 
So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll ask a thousand questions and we'll go through life experiences and, and we will just riff on things, right? So me and Mike will go back and forth, da 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 da, and or he'll be like, I think this is kind of funny. I'm like, okay, great, that is funny. Here's how you have to word it: change up this, change up that, change up this. And now let's 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 narrow down to what is exactly what we're talking about. What is the what is the needle in that haystack of all those words, right? What is the not the, just the premise of the joke, but the essence of the joke? So, um, he has a joke about. Um, that we've been working on, let's see here. Oh, about watching movies with his wife, right? And it's this big, long joke. But the premise is that um, the women's idea of romance is terrifying, right? Uh, it always ends with cheating on the guy and letting him die or murdered or leaving him with all of his money. Like the notebook, you know, he uses that example of the notebook, which is what the woman leaves her 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 fiance for some dude and then forgets about like all this terrible all the life she ruined in the past and then you know women find the romantic or titanic you know where it's like she uh she bangs another guy on the boat and then lets him drown there was room on that board for both of them you know, but she was like see you later and that's romantic to women so when, so then it's like once you find that you go okay now what is the real idea of romance to women it's terrifying and then if you flip it around, you know, so then it's, then do we flip it around? What other elements of it do we bring in? You know, is, is it not just movies? Is it real life? Like what's romantic for men? What's romantic for women? That sort of thing. So then it's, yeah. it's really, it's drilling down. So you get a very specific statement and then finding every avenue that attaches to that statement. And if you try to attach other avenues to that statement before you get that specificity, you'll lose everything. It'll be too all over the place. But how does it work? You're writing for basically four comedians, three others and yourself. If yeah. you think of something, how do you decide where it goes? Have you ever written something for somebody else? Like, oh, man, that joke killed. Why did I give it away? <laughs> well, a lot of times what I do is, uh, you know, the jokes that uh, are they're totally different voices. You know, like if you watch if you watch a little Michael Yo and you watch a little me, totally different. Um, so it's it's easy to go like, oh, this is not for me. Um, and my stuff tends to be very personal about my own life. And so it'd be very, I, I would not do a, a bit about movies. Um, it's just not something that interests me. You know, he has another bit about music and song lyrics. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. It's not, you know, that, that could be used by almost anybody. And that's not for me, you know. When, when you're a writer, as in author, your, your work is protected. When you're a singer or a songwriter, your work is protected. Why is it that the world of comedy seems to never have been able to figure out a way to protect your work? Uh, they've tried. There's been some lawsuits. That's for certain. Um, but, uh, I mean, like, in my personal experience writing for other comedians, they hire me for the attempt. I'm like a baseball player. You know, I, I get hired to swing the bat, and hopefully it connects and then that's yours. Um, but I think when it comes to stand-up comedy, you know, the, the, the intellectual property laws, there's no, there's no precedent set that says that, uh, you know, I mean, I imagine if these words were said in the exact same way, then great. But also a song has a start and, a beat and an end, right? A bit kind of does, but it runs into the next bit. Uh, and then it's produced in a special 
And so I guess I imagine if you saw somebody recite a special, you'd probably see a lawsuit on your hands, but uh, there's been no precedent set. No, I would, I would disagree with that. I would, I mean, I don't know about the precedent being set, but you know, a song is a bunch of words. A poem is a bunch of words. A book is a whole lot of words. If you wrote it, you know, if you took some bestseller and just trans, you know, rewrote it in your own words and tried to sell it, you would be sued. I think if you took something, I mean, it doesn't have to be the exact same words. There's lawsuits over songs where it's the same chord progression. It sounds similar. And the question is, how similar is it? Because if I started doing, you know, seven dirty words you can't say on TV, and it was the same, the same premise with different words, except for the seven dirty words, maybe I told the seven dirty words in a different order, that would still be plagiarism. Do you I mean, George Carlin could come out of the grave and sue me. Well, I think I think the big problem then is really comedians don't have money for lawyers. And uh, and number yeah. two, do you guys do you guys remember when uh, it was uh, Louis was all upset because he heard that um, uh, Dane Cook stole his bit? And I remember listening to it, and I, and he was I was like, "What is the bit?" And he goes, "Oh, it's the bit where you can name your kids whatever you want." And I go, oh, you mean the bit that Steve Martin did 25 years ago? <laughs> you know, there's only so many ideas in the world. You can't, you cannot say, I wrote a love song. Nobody else gets to write a love song. You can't even get more specific than that. I wrote a love song about a guy cheating on me and then being angry at him and then fucking his friend. Somebody else can still write a love song about that. So I think it's like, how specific can you get? Yeah. Premises are real broad. That's why I've never been a fan of hack premises, that idea. Well, do you know? I mean, here's a weird question. Like, do you know when you're stealing or, or do you go, gee, like, I, I think I had a dream about that joke. It, and it, was it a dream that I dreamt? I mean, I mean, what? how does that work? <laughs> I stole a joke once. I, I, I stole it on accident. And uh, here's how it happened was I went, wow, that joke is formed. It is ready and it's perfect. How did I do that? I must be getting good. And then I was, I was on stage and Greg Warren comes up to me afterwards. He goes, hey man, he goes, I know you're not a hack because the rest of the 45 minutes was all original, but that's David Tell's joke. And uh, the joke fit so perfectly. I just, I didn't realize I had heard it on an album 10 years prior. Yeah. And then, you know, and the joke was, and it's a great joke and it's David Tell's, go listen to his stuff. Uh, it, the joke is, uh, you remember as a kid when you thought your dad was a superhero and uh, then you grow up and realize he's just a drunk guy in a cape? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's specific enough that, that I would say that that's, you know, suable. But I had a joke come to me. I think of a lot of stuff in, the, in my sleep when I wake up. And I had a dream a few years ago that there was this beautiful female comedian on stage telling this joke. And it was a really funny joke. And I woke up. And I thought, I've got to find her. And then I realized she doesn't exist. I made her up. This was, you know, my unconscious dreaming. And then I thought, just like, just like then most I thought women that, in your life. What? It's just like most women in your life. <laughs> Unfortunately. So, but then I woke up, you know, when I woke up and thought of that, I thought, well, that joke is obviously something I thought of in my sleep. But part of me was thinking the same thing with you, um, discovering, I thought maybe this is somebody else's joke. So I was very hesitant to tell it on stage. I told her just at open mic nights, not in front of a paying audience for like six months. 
until waiting for somebody to come up and say like, that's David Tell's joke or that's Joe Larson's joke or whatever. And it never happened. And I'm like, oh, I guess I just wrote a joke in my sleep. I think I remember that joke. That's that one about your period, right? <laughs> Great joke. So, so, but when that happens, is it like the internal, you know, comedic universe says, you know, you're an asshole or is it like, yeah, we've all been there. Um, you know, it was, it was hard to tell whether, you know, it was yours or not. I mean, I mean, what, what, what really happens inside baseball? Like when that happens? Well, I think that, you know, like in my situation, again, it was like, I looked at your hour. I've looked at your body of work. This is not a common thing. I think you may have remembered something that isn't yours, you know, or, ah. you know, uh, whereas like, uh, uh, Robin Williams was famous for uh, taking somebody's entire closer and just doing it on HBO and then just writing a check. Going, I'm sorry, you guys, I didn't mean to. You know, my dad saw it happen once. He was the punchline in San Fran in the 70s. And Robin walks in, this guy walks up to him, you son of a bitch, you did my whole you know, closer on HBO. And he's like, oh man, is 10 grand enough? It's like, yeah, 10 million in a year. Well, I mean, Robin Williams was famous that when he went into the comedy store or other comedy club, comedians would, whoever was on stage would stop doing their material and just start doing crowd work, just asking the audience questions because they didn't want Robin Williams to hear their jokes. Yeah, I think because his, the way his brain worked was so coming off the top of his head and anything that went in there came out the other side. So, um, well, well, so that, like, so did, did he have a, if he was going to do an hour show, did he have an hour's worth of material or did he have five minutes worth of material and everything else was just like his brain, you know, exploding on stage? Or I don't know. I think I, I, I think the right answer to that is it was different at different points. I imagine as he was coming up against a special, he probably had an hour's worth of material uh, that he had worked out on stage. But my dad once, again, this was in the 70s, he was working the same weekend of the punch. And he was on Mork and Mindy at the time. And he'd come up from uh, LA and he was in San Francisco. And my dad finishes the show and the host comes back. He's like, we got another comedian. And my dad's like, what the, another comedian? That doesn't happen. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. And, and Robin goes up there and for 45 minutes just annihilates. And it's all stuff about this and that. It's really off the cuff. And afterwards, my dad goes up to Robin, like, wow, that was amazing. And one of the waitresses comes by and goes, nice job, Robin. Finally. <laughs> and eating shit for like the past week and a half, just doing <laughs> riffing, trying to find things here and there, wherever he could find them. Because right. uh, his, his method wasn't to sit in with a pen and paper and come up with ideas and write them and, and fix them and put them into a place. It was just a go. And then when things locked into place, it was write them down. Very cool. Very cool. So we're almost out of time. Let's say that uh, we find out that blueberries cures COVID, right? Okay, great. Right. So what happens after we eat the blueberries? What's, what's the first thing that, you, that you're going to do? What's, what's your first post COVID uh, gig that you would hope to have? I'm investing in blueberries as soon as I find that out. Let me tell you, I got, <laughs> I got 10 grand sitting there just for blueberries. I am going to hoard as many of those things as I can. As long as it's not cauliflower, because I think I'd rather have COVID. Yeah, well, cauliflower is fixing everything right now, man. It fixed its pizza, cauliflower is rice, cauliflower is everything. It's, have you uh, eaten that crap? Oh, it's terrible. My wife loves the cauliflower rice. And every time I'm like, just it smells like somebody farted in your food. It's terrible. <laughs> 
Um, first thing I'm doing, I'm just excited to get back to working like on a daily basis, you know? Um, uh, I found that my album did really well last year and oh, wow. each month Magic Money shows up in my bank account and I was like, well, I need another album. So uh, I was really working on new stuff this year and then when COVID hit, it was like, it put the brakes on it because uh, if you don't have an audience to bounce it off of, you don't get a real response. You don't know how it's going. So that'd be my first thing. It's just get out there and bang on four or five sets a night. I, I have an audience because I do shows for my, literally on the street for my neighbors at happy hour once a week. And I stop harassing them. They actually, they asked me to call to talk to you about that. <laughs> I go out there with a piece of paper and I run new jokes by them and it's been great. And zoom the same thing because you're just doing a zoom show it doesn't have the same priority as, as a paying audience. So you try out new stuff. And the beauty of it is I do it sitting here in my office. I can read jokes and do my best to make it look like I'm not reading. Nobody can see that there's a screen in front of me. Yeah. Well, guys, we're almost out of time. This was great. Joe, you you're you're in the like the repeat guest category now, kind of like Carson, right? You can you can <laughs> yeah. you can do my job soon. I could go on vacation, and you can you can you can be the guest host. But uh, I get to hey. sit on the de- I get to sit on the couch with your dog. How exciting! Oh, <laughs> well, let's, let's the hope that the uh, let's hope that blueberries does the trick, and we can all go back to work and uh, you know go back to normal here pretty soon. But uh, guys, this was another session of. Coffee in the clouds with comedians, with comedians. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. See ya.